friends, I'm Stacy, And I'm Melissa. And we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. podcast. Today, Melissa and I are recording in a new location. The Goffstown Public Library is fully open after working through multiple phases from the first COVID closing in 2020 and then to a reservation and appointment browsing starting in the winter of 2021. But now it's the summer of 2021 and the library is back into the swing of things. Yeah, it is exciting, but it's bittersweet. Yeah, because that means that the teen space we were using is now starting to be used by, well, teens again. (laughs) And that's a good thing. But this month, we have moved our operation to the Goffstown High School. For me, this is kind of fun. I feel like I'm on a field trip. Plus, I'm a graduate of Goffstown High School a long time ago. So it's a little bit like visiting an old friend. Yeah, I'm sorry we couldn't get you in into the library today. They're busy with uh, summer school. But here we are sitting in a biology lab, all <laughs> emptied out, ready for cleaning. So if you're watching this, you can see our backgrounds aren't very exciting. Yeah, does not look like a library type of anything. But, but hey, we are just happy to be here and that we have a space, right? So if you listened to our last podcast, then you know today we are discussing Marie Lu's historical fiction fantasy mashup, The Kingdom of Back. Lu intertwines the early historical life and events of the Mozart family with a fantasy world of upside-down trees, underwater grottos, and ogre fairies, spelled F-A-E-R-I-E-S, and I think we're going to talk about that distinction later of the spelling, uh, a princeling and a princess that's trapped in a tower. I bet you are thinking that is some really creative story, and listeners, you've got that right. And at the heart of the story is the real historical figure, Maria Anna Mozart, called Nannerl by her family. And quite frankly, I feel a little bit silly, but I had no clue that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had a sister until I read this book. And then I felt like I could just not stop wanting to learn about her. Yeah, Stacy, I knew nothing about her either. And truth be told, I knew very little about Mozart himself, except that I enjoy his music. Um, I used to listen to him while I was studying in college. He was my go-to guy. Mm-hmm. But I am truly in love with the idea of his sister, too. Well, before we dive into a bit more about the book and my thoughts, I give the court to you, Melissa, to share some possible themes and topics that might be up for discussion. There were so many great topics to discuss. This book was packed. Um, The genre of historical fiction involves so much research on the author's part. Researching such a book is kind of just tracing the author's own steps. So here are the topics that caught my eye with my read-through. First, there was Mozart, obviously. Mm. Mozart's sister, fairies. And then I thought about Grimm's fairy tales. A guy named Johann Schachner, who I later learned was a trumpeter to the Archbishop of Salzburg. And all the characters in here were real. Um, Frederick Schleich. 
to Grohl, who is the first Mozart biographer, Johann Schmalecker, I like his name, <laughs> he was a goldsmith, and the Mozarts rented rooms from him. Um, then there's Edelweiss, the flower, trees with roots in the air, the dark flower, wigs, two moons, grottos, ogres, swords and weapons, Mozart's letters, clavichords, which I'm ashamed to say I never heard of before either. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, a musical instrument, Vienna, Salzburg, and the Queen of the Night, who I later learned was actually a character in Mozart's The Magic Flute. Ah. These are great topics, Melissa. Throughout the story, Wolfgang suffered many illnesses. Um, Nernal also became gravely ill, and their father had a bout of illness as well. Um, and I found it fascinating to read about the way that the doctor would um, treat the ailments. Uh, like During Nernal's illness, it's written, He bled me, then fed me a bitter tonic and left. We could have added 18th century diseases and medicine to our fabulous list of curious topics. Yeah, that would have been a great one. I'm sorry I didn't think of it. Um, I have a great person to interview on that topic, too. And I promise on the, the next book we read involving diseases, I'll get that interviewee <laughs> on board. Um, and I know she would be excited to participate. But I want to tell you up front that we do not have an interview this month. We teachers are busy, busy, busy at the end of the school year. And I did not dare ask my colleagues to give any time for this podcast. Yeah. We prefer that they got their grades in on time, said their goodbyes to their students, and packed their classrooms for the summer. Stacy and I do have a few aces up our sleeves with regards to autumn interviews, so beginning in September, we will have a few surprises for you, dear listeners. Yeah. So, let's get to it, Stacy. The three themes that I did settle on were Mozart himself, Nanerol, and fairy tales, which I will be discussing later in this podcast. What have you got for us today? Well, let's start with a bit of a summary or a book talk, so to speak. And and full disclaimer out there, uh, I always struggle with the summary because I want to give enough bits for those who haven't read the book to feel enticed to read it. And I also want it to be able to connect um, to our themes later on. But I don't want to give so much away that our listeners feel like I just totally spilled the beans about the whole story. And then they don't like, oh, well, I don't need to read it. She just told us everything. So I, I, I agonize over this. I think you do a great job. Too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so the Kingdom of Back centers around Maria Anna Mozart. And her nickname is Nanerl. And I, you know me, I struggle saying words all the time. But that one's a hard one to roll off my tongue. She's a musical prodigy. She is the older sister of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, affectionately called Wolferl. That's another real weird kind of nickname in there. I might just call him Wolfgang through this whole thing. <laughs> the story begins with Nanerl. She's about eight years old, and her brother is just a little over four, uh, I believe. And while Nanerl is a musical genius, she lives in the confines of the 18th century generals, where composing is man's work, her musical talents can only be heard until she is of marrying age, and then her legacy will not be the magnificence of her music, but on whether she makes a fine wife and mother one day. And she struggles with this. Uh, Nanerl is afraid of being invisible. She's afraid of being forgotten. With the passage of time from childhood to adulthood, she will have to give up her passion and instead embark on the role expected of her. One night, while holding a special pendant, it's a birthday present from her mom, Nanerl's heart makes a wish to be worthy, worthy of being praised, of being loved, of, of living in the hearts of the people well after she is gone. And in a far-off land... Hyacinth, a beautiful fairy princeling, hears Nanel's wish. Late one night, 
Hyacinth appears to, appears to Nernal and leads her and Wolfgang to the Kingdom of Back, an alternate world actually created, really, in real life by the Mozart children. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Where um, the trees grow upside down, a prince is missing, a princess is locked in a tower, and two moons take the place of the sun. Hyacinth makes a deal with Nanerl to grant her wish, as long as she also helps him with three important missions happening in the kingdom of Back. The chapters bring us through a decade of the Mozart children's lives, both in the real world of the 18th century setting, as well as the magical world of the kingdom of Back. And it starts to become more real all the time, this kingdom, where Nernal starts to question whether things that happen in the real world are direct repercussions from tasks completed or not completed in the magical world. Through it all, Nernal is navigating her relationship with her father, her brother, and her place in the 18th century world. And in the kingdom of Bach, she is starting to question whether Hyacinth is really her benevolent guardian. Each mission starts to stir doubt in her and further complicates her feelings about herself and the relationships around her. Listeners, this was a beautiful blend of fiction weaving real historical figures and events with just the right amount of fantasy, at least for me. (laughs) The author's imagery morphs so effortlessly between cities in Europe like Salzburg, Vienna, and London to the mossy ground in the field of Edelweiss in the Kingdom of Back. I love the affectionate relationship between Nanal and her brother, Wolfgang. But the sibling rivalry that Nanal felt was not lost on the reader. Wolfgang got away with mischievous because he was a cute little boy, while Nanal had to mind him. Watch over your brother. It'll be good practice for you when you are a mother, I think her father says at some point in the book. Yeah, he got to make funny marriage proposals. Wolfgang, not her father. <laughs> got to make funny marriage proposals to royalty, but she couldn't even show any impropriety by speaking to a young man as he congratulated her on her performance. Nanal straddles trying to do what is expected of her while also standing up for the injustice of it all. It is easy to see how desperation and darkness can sneak into one's heart when all you want is validation. But just maybe, we're not always looking for it in the right place. And I know that last part probably sounds pretty mysterious, right? So you'll have to read the book to find out how it all fits in. I could actually listen to you read all day. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I hope you, you consider doing teen story times. I think that would be fun. You know, I have thought about that um, before the whole COVID. I was like, oh, maybe this will be. So I that might be something that I start in the fall yeah. as I start planning for our fall stuff. Can you believe summer's starting, but I'm already having to plan for fall stuff? Well, yeah, we have but, to. That's yeah. how this game works. And this is another thing I was thinking as you were reading. We have these notes here. And we have this bare floor that they're cleaning. And I just want to take the notes that we finish and just go. <laughs> Slide them over. I don't know. It's summer mode, I guess. But. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for that summary. I'm going to move on to our theme. So my first theme, as I promised, is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I've got, I'm ashamed to say I've never seen the movie Amadeus, and I was going to watch it to prepare for this. But then I was told it was not based in reality really at all. So I said, maybe I'll wait and watch afterwards. I did watch it a long, long, long time ago, and I don't remember much about it. Um, so I probably will have to rewatch it too. But I, I thought at the time that I watched it too, someone said it's it's really fictionalized. Yeah, and lots want, of liberties. I didn't want to have that in yeah. that in my head. So um, there's a lot of information about, available about Mozart. He was a prolific letter writer, and of course we have his music. And I'm talking about real information. Not, mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of 
fake stuff too, um, built on his music and, and his life. Um, but we do have real primary sources that tell us what his life was really like. After his death, his sister served as the family archivist, preserving the records related to her brother. There are also letters that their father, Leopold, wrote to their landlord that provided many details about their lives. And I'm going to give you basically what amounts to the fast facts about this brilliant man. I tried to boil it down. So (laughs) he was born in Salzburg on January 27, 1756. And I actually want to talk a teensy bit about this time and place to provide some context, Mm -hmm. um, especially for our younger listeners. Salzburg was a sovereign city during Mozart's lifetime. Um, It later became part of Austria, but at this time, it it operated by itself. It had its own government. It was a center for the Enlightenment during the Baroque period, which was a time when respect for intellectualism rose. Mm -hmm. Mozart's musical studies fit right into this era that appreciated the arts, mathematics, philosophy, and more. The Catholic Church also had strong power during this time, and much music was written for worship. In fact, one of Mozart's chief benefactors was the Prince Prince Archbishop Colorido, who eventually fired him. Um, And that's just an aside. But the gist of my research says that Colorido treated Mozart as a common servant and or Mozart acted like a prima donna. And that just didn't work very well. Well, I I think inside this book, too, um, Leopold, the father, but even um, Mozart as a young child. And I think even Nano herself, like the, the appreciation of music and they would make comments when they felt that um, others in society did not appreciate music in the same way or have an ear for this this type of music or, you know, just the passion and the love that they had for it. So I could see that. Right. Happening. At one time, musicians were really truly entertainers, yeah. like the Middle Ages. But now that we're moving into intellectualism and and uh you know, we've passed the Renaissance mm-hmm. and into Baroque. Um, I think they had a right to feel appreciated in a different yeah. way. They were they were highly educated yep. um, in their field. Um, anyway, basically, Salzburg was at its height during this time. Its architecture, schools, and society are the perfect backdrop for the Mozart's remarkable lives. Mm-hmm. Um, Mozart lived in the, I, I wish I could pronounce German, Gatridgas, which was the heart of the old city. His house from that time is now a museum and first became Uh one in 1880, which is pretty early for museums. Mozart's violin is there, as well as the clavichord mentioned in the book, which is a piano-like instrument. The museum also has his letters and other archival material. Wolfgang did learn by watching his sister, who is five years older than he, and I'll get to some kind of controversy about that a little Mm. later. His father was a composer, violinist, and assistant concertmaster. Numerous sources say that he was a good teacher. Some say he was tyrannical and used his children to try to fulfill his own dreams of riches and fame. Others portray him as a loving husband who sought out his wife's opinion. While the two were not mutually exclusive, it's hard, it was really hard for me, anyway, to get a clear picture of his personality mm. from the research that yeah. I did. The, the book didn't talk much about his line of work, did it, Stacey? It, it really didn't. I mean, it didn't elaborate on Leopold Mozart's uh, line of work specifically. It spoke of him being the music teacher to his children, um, and it mentioned how the archbishop was cutting his salary or that the archbishop was no longer going to allow um, a leave of absence for these trips that they were taking all over um, Europe. And some some research revealed that he was the violinist for the court of the Prince Archbishop and worked up to being a court composer and then a chapel master. And so I also wonder if the author um, 
uh, Marie Lu came to the same conclusion as you, Melissa, that there was not a clear cut picture Mm -hmm. of his characteristics and personality, because I think the book also portrayed the father and both the element of greed and bitterness, but also a man who who would discuss things with his wife. So that was interesting. Your research with what I thought I read within the book. Yeah, like she was trying to write her way around it. Yeah. So, um, Okay. <laughs> and the paper goes down. <laughs> so that's all really interesting. Um, but also not mentioned in the book, uh, which I thought was interesting, and I forgotten I had read this maybe a couple of years ago. Um, the Mozarts had pet songbirds oh. and a dog. And we, we, you know, when we talk about family, we should talk yeah. about our pets, right? Um, I highly recommend the book Mozart's Starling is about the composer's relationship with one of his birds, and it mixes in natural history and author Leanda Holt's own experiences with the species. She actually adopted uh, one of these songbirds, and it was very interesting, um, her historical and natural uh, ideas about that uh, species. So anyway, Nannerl and her brother did travel and play throughout courts of Europe. Mozart took 17 major trips in his short life, traveling as far away as London, One of the things that made him great besides his remarkable skills was these travels that exposed him to a wide variety of music and other talented musicians. Um, And I I do wonder how many musicians at the time did that. That was something that Mm. Leopold, their father, offered to them. Um, And I think that was really special and really helped make them great. On the negative side of the Mozart's life, they did frequently fall ill and had to limit their tours. And Mozart struggled with debt due to living a lavish lifestyle. So he he liked his money. Mm-hmm. Some historians believe he had bipolar disorder, as he had times of hectic creativity and other times of depression. And he died at age 35 under mysterious circumstances. And the movie, Mozart, uh, Amadeus, claims he was poisoned by a rival musician, but there's no evidence of this. Yeah, we don't I had know read that as, as a possibility there as well. Um, but yeah, there was... There was Definitely in the book, um, frequent um, illnesses that, and, and it constantly talked about him being frail and um, you know small for his age and things like that. Uh, but yeah, well, and I, I love know. the way Lou came, and not to give anything away, Lou mm. came up with a way to incorporate yes. those illnesses in yep. the fantasy. So yeah, um, she did a really good job um, with that. Yeah, that that that's total that mashupy of those, those historical things and. In the fantasy, you, yeah. you have to read it. Yeah, it took her a long time to write this, and yes. you can see why. <laughs> so, okay, theme two is is our star, Nannerl. Mozart's sister uh, was nicknamed Nannerl, but her full name was Maria Anna. And actually, her mother's name was Anna, Anna Maria, Maria, which yep. I found interesting. <laughs> I wonder how often they did that back then. Um, in later life, she was called Marianne. She and her brother toured together as Wonderkinder, which are child prodigies. When they were young, she was born July 30th or 31st, 1751, was five years older than Mozart. So if you remember back to our episode on the Queen's Gambit, you'll remember mm. how our guest speaker addressed how little we know about women's lives through history. We know about Nanerol because of her diary writing, but more so because of the letters she wrote to her brother. However, we know little about her in comparison to her brother due to the society's expectations of a girl and woman's place. Mm -hmm. Women were not permitted to show their talents in public once they reached a marriageable age. Lou's book gives life to the bits and pieces we know of this other Mozart. I say that in quotes because you see that everywhere. The other Mozart. Um, Many chose to call her that. 
We don't know how much music Nanarol wrote. We believe she wrote music. It has never been found, though some claim that some of the notes in Mozart's writing are by Nanarol and that her, quote, fingerprint, that's what they, they call it when they see evidence of create, somebody else's creativity. Um, and it's seen in the musical books her father used to train his son. But we have never found pieces of her own work that we can say for sure were by her own hand. Mm. Women in Europe back then were not encouraged to put their names on anything. Some things I read said they were actually not allowed to sign. Of course, this does not mean that Nanarol's work is not out there somewhere, either under our noses yeah. or still hidden away. One of the greatest joys in the field of history is finding missing links, just like Nanarol's music. Hopefully, we will identify her work one day. I hope so. Many sources say that Nanarol gave up music after she reached marriageable age, and her father took Wolfgang on tour, leaving her and her mother at home. However, from what we know about women during that time, it is possible that she kept writing privately as her role as wife and mother took prominence in a society, society that expected that. What a shame. Uh, it is a shame. And I think especially when you read this book and you, uh, you um, I don't know, the heart of her passion uh, of loving music, um, you know, it rivals her, her brother's love of music, too. I mean, it, it, I don't know. So it is such a shame to think that somewhere might you know her music is there and we just don't know i don't know one of my favorite artists is and i'm gonna forget i forget her first name which is a shame but um thomas aikens is a very well-known american artist mm -hmm. and when i was in college i studied his wife susan mcdowell aikens okay. who was an artist in her own right and mm. very good um Thomas Aikens would always show women doing womenly things like it like he needed to show women as sewers or as caring for a baby. And he never hmm. just showed a woman. Um, but Susan McDowell had a way of capturing a woman um, through her eyes and expression without the the physical object that mm -hmm. tied her to her domesticity. Hmm. But she gave it up when she married Thomas to become his basically manager and wife and huh. and she stopped painting. So this happened all the time yeah. in history. Um, so when I was reading about Nanarell, I found a, a quote that I thought summed up this whole uh, problematic aspect of women's lives. Interesting. So, um, quote, did she stop? None of her music has survived. Perhaps she never showed it to anybody again. Perhaps she destroyed it. <gasps> Maybe we will find it one day. Maybe we already did, but it's wrongly attributed mm. to her brother's hand. Composing or performing music was not encouraged for women of her time. Wolfgang repeatedly wrote that nobody played his keyboard music as well as she could. And Leopold described her as one of the most skillful players in Europe with perfect insight into harmony and modulations and that she improvises so successfully that you would be astounded. Like Virginia Woolf's imagined Shakespeare's sister. Now I have to look into that one. Yeah. <laughs> Nanarol was not given the opportunity to thrive. And what she did create was not valued or preserved. Mm. Most female composers from the past have been forgotten. Their music lost or gathering dust in libraries. We will never know what could have been. And this is our loss. End mm. quote. And that's from The Guardian. Yeah. According to a Smithsonian Magazine article, Leopold said, My little girl plays the most difficult works we have with incredible precision and so excellently. Leopold wrote that in a letter in 1764. How could someone with so much talent just put it aside? Yeah. It's just, it's it, because society made her 
do so. And I think even, I don't know, like her father who, who equally loved music, you know, obviously that we say that was his line of work too. And to say these things about his daughter and then be like, and now you just marry. Right. And here is the man we picked for you and go on your way. Right. You know, like, and watch uh, your brother because it'll yes. prepare you to be a mother. <laughs> like, I don't, uh, I, I, I don't know. Because I think, you know, while we still, I think, have um, strides to make, I have not grown up particularly in that type of um, environment. So I think sometimes it's unimaginable for me to think like, what? No. I get to choose what I want to do. I get to choose who I want to marry. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's very strange. If I want to get married, maybe I don't. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, back then, if you didn't get married, yeah, you were weird. You were, yep. <laughs> so, it, yeah, as you mentioned, her father even chose her husband, and he was a widower twice. Um, so an o- much older man. Mm. She cared for her father after her mother's death. Um, Nanerol was allowed to teach piano, but she remained in Salzburg. Mm. Um, just, it's, it's sad. Uh, I hope she was happy anyway. Um, but anyway, how exactly should history remember Maria Anna Mozart? How much did she influence her brother's career? I watched a documentary from 2006 called In Search of Mozart. It talked about Nanerol's talent, but it also brushed it aside as well. Hmm. It's, um, and I remember when I wrote that paper about Thomas Aiken's wife, my, my advisor kind of brushed it aside and said, well, you know, and she was a women's studies person. She said, well, Thomas Aikens was really talented. He was the more talented. And even I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know, just because we don't. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, one wonders how skilled she really was. The film did give credit to their father, Leopold, for his teaching skill and his own musical talents. Is Nanerol simply brushed aside because she was a woman at a time when history disregarded women? She was useful for helping her father garner money and fame for the family, but was always relegated to the back, as we see in Marie Lou's book. Did she deserve to be so overshadowed by her brother? We may never know. How much skill for writing and playing did she really have? The Smithsonian article that I mentioned earlier argues for her positive influence over her brother, if nothing else. One music historian stated, whether Wolfgang wanted to please his older sister or outshine her, Her musical accomplishments may have driven him harder than perhaps he would have on his Mm, own. That competition, right? That like, yeah. So who would he have been without her? Mm. That's kind of interesting to think about. There's actually a film called Mozart's Sister. I was excited to find it, but it is highly fictionalized. um, But I'm still looking forward to seeing it. I haven't used it yet. And there goes another piece. Yeah, I threw one down as well. (laughs) I'm following your lead. In 2015, a play was made called The Other Mozart. I've linked to an article from The Guardian that talks about it on our Pinterest page. Um, There's a lot of good stuff on our Pinterest page this month, so don't forget about it. Yes. There have been several fictional books about uh, Nanerol that were mentioned by NPR and a biography. The biography was also accompanied by a blog, which I've linked to in our Pinterest page. And the blog um, entries speak as if Nanerol's writing them, Hmm. which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Of Nanerol's talents, Wolfgang Amadeus himself wrote to her from Italy after he sent a composition to her. He wrote, My dear sister, I am in awe that you can compose so well. In a word, the song you wrote is beautiful. So he thought highly of his sister. So, you know, so looking at this, the, the, the movies that you've talked about, the articles, um, the other, the blog, I'm wondering where have I been that 
it was just picking out this book that I realized Mozart had a sister. <laughs> but know. when you think about how much is out there about Mozart, this really isn't yeah, that much. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's not. That's things. true. That's true. Um, yeah, it's, it makes me sad. <laughs> so, all right, our third theme um, is fairy tales. So, Herr von Grimm is mentioned when Wolferl, which is his nickname, so and we don't know how to say. pronounce it, yeah. so we're going to call him Wolfgang. <laughs> um, he declares on page 228 of Lou's book, Herr von Grimm said, the beast of Gavadin has a tail as long as I am tall and twice the rows of teeth of any wolf. This image at the supper table was portrayed as the family began to hear reports of vicious attacks across France of man-eating wolf dogs prowling the mountain paths near Perigrad. Again, Lou turns yeah. to real history to tell her story. In the mid-18th century, there was indeed a creature which many scholars believe really to be a wolf who attacked about 100 men and children in France. Thinking about this mythic-like creature and realizing that the famous Brothers Grimm wrote around the same time, I got all excited. I thought she was referring to one of these fairy tale writers to have her own story give a nod to their influence yeah. on her own. Work. I thought that too, and I didn't end up looking it up. And so, till I read these notes, and I was like, "Oh, it wasn't them." Okay, yeah. So, um, the brothers Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were actually oral historians or folklorists, meaning that they took spoken stories that were passed through generations and recorded them on paper. Their first volume of fairy tales appeared in 1812, retelling authentic German stories. Mm -hmm. The stories were not written specifically for children, though we think of them as children's stories now. Works such as Hansel and Gretel, Rumpelstiltskin, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, The Pied Piper, Rapunzel and more, have become part of our heritage and reflect emotions and activities that reflect on our humanity. Um, and I just want to throw this in there. Uh, the Grimm's were librarians. Wow. So, and also, where would Disney be without the without Brothers Without the Grimm? Brothers Grimm, exactly. I was like, Disney, 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 <laughs> Disney. They, have, they bought the rights to all those. And, and, and I think if you were to anybody who has read uh, the Brothers Grimm, any of the traditional, you see they are very dark and, you know, Disney prettied them up. Yes, very much so. <laughs> But as I as I alluded to uh, a little while ago, my initial excitement at making this connection was dashed when I did my research <sighs> and learned that the Brothers Grimm were not born until the 1780s, which was near the end of Mozart's life. There was another Grimm in Mozart's life, the Baron von Grimm, Frederick Melchior, who was a writer and an art critic. He supported Wolfgang Mozart when he visited Paris. It's strange to me, though, that Lou would attach this tall tale to a Grimm who is not one of the Grimm's mm. who told such tales. And I'm wondering if she just made a mistake or is it just a coincidence? Yeah. It just it seemed weird. Yeah. But there's so much research, I think, that ha that had to go into this book, because um, even uh, the the Mozart children go and they play for um, they're going to play for this uh royalty a wedding that's supposed to be and um is it uh joseph uh, what is her first name what i can't remember exactly but anyway she dies of smallpox and i was like did that really happen and i looked it up i was like oh my gosh that really did happen and this is who she was going to marry so there was so much research that it seems uh hmm seems like she, she knew it was not the grim but why did she attach this story to him maybe yeah, maybe he really did tell that story maybe even though he, he wasn't one of the yeah i don't know Maybe I have to dig a little deeper. <laughs> anyway, the fairy tale feel of this story of the kingdom of Back is still worth considering in the tradition of the Brothers Grimm. 
Um, and according to the National Endowment for Humanities website, I wanted, I thought this was another good quote. The stories the Brothers Grimm first collected are brusque, blunt, absurd, comical, and tragic, and are not strictly speaking fairy tales. In fact, the Grimm's never intended the tales to be read by children. The tales are about children and families and how, how they reacted to difficult conditions under which they lived. The Grimm's thought that the stories and their morals emanated naturally from the German people in an oral tradition, and they wanted to preserve them before the tales were lost forever. In gathering the tales, the Grimm's made a unique contribution to folklore, yeah. and I would say to the world in yeah. general, to society. Um, so that was from the, the National Endowment. I, I liked that. Many of the stories were stark narratives about brutal living conditions, as um, they said, and I pulled out that paragraph to talk about how magic and superstition are deeply embedded in these tales, because that's how people dealt with yep. their uh, brutal living conditions. Just as we see with the kingdom of Bach and the tale of Hyacinth, the idea of the fairy, F-A-E-R-Y, which you mentioned earlier, Stacy, hearkens to beliefs about nature with F-A-E, the fae, relating to the idea of natural spirits. Mm. The idea of fairy or fairy, I've seen it spelled both ways yeah. at different times. Um, the fairy tales reach back to pagan ideas, mythical stories about the natural world that were originally passed down orally through generations, just like the Grimm's fairy tales. Fairy tales fit within the more general category of folk tales, which the Grimm's followed, which also includes fables and legends. So I think that I read um, in that in stories there is a distinction between fairy, like the F A I R, and fairies, the F A E, uh, in that the former are usually good creatures. You know, they'll, they'll think about Tinkerbell, or you know, um, they're friendly and they have the appearance of tiny, beautiful humans. Uh, but the later, uh, the latter can be uh, mischievous and they possess malintent. So, hmm, you'll have to read the the story and you know we did say fae so that might give you a little bit of insight into hyacinth i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so the idea of and my daughter loved fairies when she was little but we like the fai yes kinds yeah um a bbc article that i found talks about some stories some of these folk tales and fairy tales being thousands of years old Modern folklorists believe that Beauty and the Beast and Rumpled Stiltskin are actually 4,000 wow. years old. And I don't know what their evidence is of this. Yeah. I decided not to dig further for that. But I thought that was fascinating. One story that I never heard of called The Smith and the Devil. Have you heard of that I've one? I've never heard of that. I'm going to no. have to find that yeah. and read that one. Um, that's been traced to the Bronze Age, which is 3300 to 1200 BCE. Wow. Um, one researcher believes these stories have persisted because the fantasy makes these tales stand out, but the ordinary elements make them easy to understand and to remember. Mm -hmm. Any of, I think any of us who grew up with these stories can, can rehash them, yes. can retell them. Yeah. This combination of strange but not too strange may be the key to their persistence across the millennia. This story, The Kingdom of Back, is truly dripping with topics, and the author took her time to deftly weave in details from the real world. I want to point out that I love the author's note at the end, um, but I wish that author Marie Lou had put it at the beginning. Yeah. She told us that the story was based on written records, and that would have made it so much more meaningful to me as I read. Um, maybe it would have taken others out of the fantasy, and that's why she saved it. 
Um, but for me, I like my fiction steeped in reality <laughs> and my reality steeped in fiction. Um, and as with other books we have read, I liked it better after I did my research. Yeah. I, I too wish the author's note was at the beginning. Uh, halfway through the book, actually, I got curious about the historical aspect of the events and people. You know, as I was reading, I was like, this is this a real person? Did they, you know, and I could have stopped each time to look it up, but I had to get through the book. Um, so I ended up looking in the back just to see if there was an author's note. And I was so excited when I found it. And I was pretty happy to find out that I was not the only one that had never heard of Mozart's sister. So the author had said that, that, you know, um, she musically um, also played and and loved Mozart's music in that um, she didn't know and and actually this book took her quite a while to um, to write probably because of all the research and stuff. Yeah, I think I think you've got to be less hard on yourself. I think I know. So I don't know women... why I'm so hard on myself. <laughs> I, don't I think, know what it is. <laughs> I think it goes back to the idea of so many women buried in history, yeah. and that's why you never. And maybe knew it just her. bothers me so much that, like, I don't know. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is quite bothersome. <laughs> you were really smart to seek out that author's note. I wish I had done that because <laughs> afterwards I said, "Oh, I like this book so much better." And then I went back and I looked up everybody yeah. in there. Um, yeah. So finally, I really want to emphasize how the details of this book make the story shine. You know how much I love symbolism, right? Yes, so, I do. Uh, well, one of the strongest symbols in this book is the appearance of the flower Edelweiss, which I learned has been historically tied to the ideas of both adventure and magic. I always think mm. of, uh, what what's the movie it was in? Sound of Music? Right? I've Edel- never seen that. I know. You gotta put that on your list too. <laughs> Even I've seen that. My, every time I mention a movie, my husband says, "You haven't, you haven't seen that one. That one I've seen. You gotta, you gotta I see, that, to see so. that." You know the song, though. Right? I do know the <laughs> song. The song I know. The movie I've never seen. So when I think of Edelweiss, I think of that. Um, and recently, someone who works at the high school told me he he got some Edelweiss for his garden, and I got so excited. Wow. And then it appeared in this book. So um, Lou uses the arrival of Edelweiss. It just keeps turning up mm-hmm. over and over again to emphasize that adventure. She uses it when the character Hyacinth comes on the scene to indicate that the adventure and magic are about to occur. And she uses it as a device to pull us into a fairy tale like scenario it's simple and yet so clever anyway well it's a beautiful day but you can't tell sitting in the science lab so but walking in we were like oh how nice it is that's right that's right um i think we should conclude our podcast now so i can get in the garden ending on flowers seems appropriate yes it does uh, so um, remember, listeners, the Curious Reader podcast can be found on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and even for free on audible.com. So download an episode and listen while you enjoy some time in the great outdoors. And I want to add this month that liking and subscribing helps others discover this podcast. So please click that little heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading. Yes. You know, a huge thank you to um, for joining us today. And if you're enjoying all that Melissa and I have to say, like she just said, please take that time to let us know by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. Melissa and I will be back next month with another great discussion. And in July, we will embark on a mysterious club with an obsession for horror. You know the rules in the horror films, right? 
Don't walk into abandoned buildings, warehouses, or cabins. That's right. You don't go into those. (laughs) Always stay together. You should never split up to investigate by yourself. Never. Um, And if there's a murderer on the loose, you know, that is not the time to be making out with anybody. Like, (laughs) I don't know. You know these horror things, right? These are the rules you follow. Well, our story centers on a mysterious society of students who orchestrate fear tests, elaborate pranks inspired by urban legends and movie tropes. And then there is Rachel. She's new to the club. She's new to the prestigious prep school, and she's a binge watcher of horror movies. The more stabby and homicidal, the better. I actually don't I like, like that horror stabby. movies. <laughs> stabby. <laughs> At first, Rachel embraces the power that comes with reckless pranking, but as the fear tests escalate, the competition turns deadly, and it's clear Rachel is playing a game she can't afford to lose. So join us next month, listeners, as we discuss Goldie Moldovsky's The Mary Shelley Club. And thank you for, I can't, before I thank you, why did you pick this book if you don't like horror okay, movies? I don't like horror movies, but I love reading horror books. There's something about the book, I don't know if it's like I can make my own image that's not as gruesome as what's on us, right? Like, I love reading stabby and homicidal things but i do not want to see it on the screen i like we'll watch like this like is see, it over i've yet? never i've never read stabby, stabby and homicidal because oh. i don't like watching it so we'll see how this oh, goes oh boy okay here we go so thank you for listening i'm very excited for next month and remember the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book